Yeah, we're ready. All right. Hey, if uh, you're new around here, my name's Spence. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy. Uh, we are talking about Christmas, talking through Advent, the coming of Christ. Uh, if you got your Bible, Matthew chapter one is where you're going to want to go. While you're getting there, let me tell you one of the, my favorite things that we do here uh, at Mercy Church during Christmas is our Christmas missions offering. It's a special financial gift that we collectively give together to take the gospel to all people. Y'all, we exist here at Mercy Church to bring a gospel awakening to Charlotte and to Charlotte. We believe it will be carried to the ends of the earth. And so what we do as a church, as we say at Christmas, we want to give our best gift to God's mission of taking the gospel to all people. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, it starts right here. This offering, well, the way we say it is 100% of, um, of what we take up of the offering goes outside the walls of Mercy Church, which means it doesn't really touch Mercy's budget. It just goes out to um, a couple of different areas. Starting here in Charlotte, it goes to meeting the needs of our community and carrying the gospel here in Charlotte. That's, it helps us support local communities like our Eastway Middle School community. We're actually hosting a, a party for them today for some families there that have just moved to the United States, holding a Christmas party for them. It helps things like that, and it helps partners. We've got so many good local ministry partners here in Charlotte that are trying to meet the needs of our city through sharing the love of Christ and serving people with the love of Christ. This offering goes to support them, but it doesn't stop in Charlotte because we believe the awakening is going to come through Charlotte to the ends of the earth. And we believe the best thing for any community is a local church body, right? That can declare the love of Christ there in its community. So a part of this offering goes to help plant churches in local communities um, all around the country. And through your generosity, over just the past three to four years, we've been able to help plant churches in LA, in Atlanta, two in Brooklyn, and next year, uh, through this offering, we're going to be able to help plant a church in Nashville, Tennessee, Pastor Derek Delane and Proclamation Church. Uh, we're going to be getting behind. You heard him preach just a few weeks ago. But it doesn't stop either just in our country because we believe this awakening that God wants to bring. He wants to bring it to the ends of the earth. That's what he's called us to go to. And so this offering helps to support missionaries. We have some of our members out on the field in places like Kenya, Cuba, Greece, South Asia, a couple of spots in Europe. We work with the International Mission Board to support a bunch of other missionaries. That's what we're doing here is trying to, we believe God wants to bring an awakening through Charlotte to the ends of the earth. And that's what this offering is all about. So let me tell you how we think about it, how the Shelton family thinks about it. Maybe that can kind of help you. What we say is we, we kind of tell our kids, listen, Christmas is about, the reason we're celebrating is we're celebrating the greatest gift ever given, which was God giving his son to us, right? In fact, all the gifts we give are just modeling the generosity that God gave to us, right? That's all we're doing there is just modeling what happened. So want to do is we want to replicate what God has done, and we want to give away the greatest gift God gave to us. We want to give that away to others. That's what we're trying to do at Christmas, and I, we want our kids to get in on and see their parents loving the advancement of the gospel and to have joy in our own generosity. And so our family says we want to give our best gift to advancing the gospel around the world. And so we seek to give our best gift as a family to the Christmas missions offering. And I would challenge you to do the same thing. How could you give your best gift to God's mission this Christmas? Here's what we're doing. We're praying that uh, Mercy Church together, uh, we're setting a goal of giving together $70,000 towards the Christmas missions offering. Uh, that is a stretch. Uh, as soon as I say that, and I think 
man, all of that goes outside the walls of mercy. I know that there's plenty of things we could do here, but we just believe uh, that we are to be about seeing the gospel go forward to all people. And so I challenge you to be a part of that. You can um, give as early as today. The site just went up. Um, if you go to our website, mercycharlotte.com slash CMO, Christmas missions offering, you can also learn more about what we're doing. All right. With that, let's get rolling into our passage Matthew chapter one, we're following during Christmas, during Advent, leading up to the story of the birth of Christ. What we're gonna do this time around is we're looking at the birth of Christ through several different of the key characters that are right there in that story. Uh, it, this one today, y'all, um, starting in verse 18, it is an incredibly powerful narrative and it is drenched in hope. I'm praying that by walking through, um, through our Advent calendar, your heart will be full of hope and thankfulness. Uh, if you're not walking through that calendar, you can get that on our website. It's just daily readings where you're seeing and, and kind of just sitting down in the arrival of Christ. I've been praying that for some of you, your love of God will be renewed in a fresh way. I just believe that's part of what Advent is to be about, is to, to pause and just sit in the arrival of Christ. And I believe that for some of you, this is there to renew your faith. And for others, man, I'm praying your faith will be restored. Maybe you came, maybe you even came in today with kind of a bit of a spiritual limp, so to speak. And I'm praying that it'll be restored. And I'm praying that God awakens faith in some of you that have kind of been, maybe you've been around church. Maybe today is your first day ever in church, but he would awaken you to who he is. We're starting verse 18 the passage that you just heard read is mostly about a guy, Joseph, who's building a life for himself. And then suddenly his life gets drastically interrupted and it gets interrupted by God. Two things that we're gonna see today in this very short passage. First, we're just gonna see Jesus. And I'm gonna spend the bulk of our time just looking at Jesus. And my hope is that we look at the, at the birth of Christ from the vantage point of Joseph Hopefully the reality of everything God is doing there, I'm gonna do my best to try and illuminate that just a little bit and I want it to lead you to worship. That's what I've been praying through. But secondly, I want you to see how Joseph models what we are to do, how we are to respond when God interrupts our life. When we have this five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan and God comes along and just totally takes it a different direction, completely interrupts. So here's what we're going to do. If, if you're newer to our church, which is kind of a simple way that we go through um, the scriptures and we go through a Sunday morning sermon, we just walk through the passage and observe what God is telling us. And then we look at a couple of observations about it. Okay. So that's all we're going to do is just walk through the scripture and observe what God is saying. And then we'll look at how we can follow God into the interruptions he brings into our life. In fact, title of today's sermon, when God interrupts your life. All right. What happens when God interrupts your life, what do you do about it? We'll start in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. All right. So after 17 verses of genealogies that talk about the, the kind of planning the, the setup for the arrival of Jesus. Now Matthew's ready to talk about it. Last week, Pastor Scott, Joey here at Providence Road did a really great job. Got to listen to those preaching through the genealogy of Jesus. And that passage that you saw, those first 17 verses, if you're looking at your Bible, kind of look like a roll call. But the more you study it, the more you realize it is an incredibly rich summary of thousands of years of the faithfulness of God. 
That's really big coming into today. We gotta have, like you gotta be, have that fresh on your mind, the faithfulness of God from those first 17 verses. That's very important because verse 18 is a very, very strange sentence, right? I mean, just look at it again. It is a strange thing. And in it, God is forever altering, interrupting Joseph's life. Matthew says, this is how he came. His mom was engaged to his dad, right? Everything's going well and good so far. Joseph's this young, aspiring carpenter. He's going to own his own business one day. He's going to be Joe the Builder. Everybody's going to come to him for all the goods, right? He's from the line of David, which is a big deal to his people. Think of it like, like a Rockefeller or a Kennedy or something like that, like a whole lot of name recognition, didn't have any of the money associated with it, but had all the name recognition that would go there. He's found a good girl. She's from a good family. He put a ring on it because he's not some scaredy cat like some boys are, right? He's not afraid of commitment. He's going in there, so I'm like, you. Yes, <laughs> hoping for a ring for Christmas. All right, so then, look, the, the deal is, though, the deal is, for them, engagement was way more, way more big of a deal than it is for us, okay? So when you see engagement, this is not just two people agreeing, kind of, they have an intent to marry. There's a binding contract that goes on when they got engaged in their culture. Like, families already made some commitments to one another. Their lives are being joined together. In fact, our next verse is going to refer to Joseph as Mary's husband. It's a really big commitment here. The last step would be joining together physically after the marriage ceremony. But this engagement was so official that breaking it off would be a divorce. You would have to file to do so. Well, before they came together, says in verse 18, it means exactly what you think it means. Marriage is not consummated yet. So before it was possible for Mary to be pregnant, it was discovered that she was pregnant. So immediately all the people who did this discovery would assume that something's going wrong. Something's not the way it's supposed to be. Mary and Joseph are supposed to be virgins, but a virgin can't be pregnant. So somebody has violated God's command, right? That's a big deal. But then Matthew throws this, before we can even get too far, he throws this by the Holy Spirit. That's the most bizarre part of the sentence, right? I think we can all agree on that, by the Holy Spirit. We're gonna talk about that more in just a second. Verse 19, so her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. He assesses the situation and decides... His fiance being pregnant and not his kid, that was not something he was trying to get into. This wasn't in the five-year plan. And clearly, he was not convinced by the Holy Spirit explanation that had been given to him, which makes a lot of sense, but especially considering the time that this is being written, the, the events in the space and time in history that they're happening. Listen, the last account of God doing anything among his people 400 years prior to this moment. All right, you, you gotta catch that. It's been 400 years since God scattered the people of Israel around the Mediterranean because of their disobedience to him. They had been oppressed by the Persian empire. Most of their land had been taken away. There's only Jerusalem, a few surrounding areas left. 400 years ago. I mean, y'all, America's like 250 years old. Right? I mean, put that into perspective of how many generations have felt nothing but silence from God. And now, Mary, you're telling me that after 400 years of God not doing anything, he's finally done something and he made you pregnant. That's what he did. Joseph doesn't believe it, but he doesn't want to embarrass her. 
He knows she's got so much she's got to deal with later anyway, so he decides to divorce her secretly. Verse 20, but after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. I love this. After he had that consider, after he had made up his mind, after he had figured out his response to this unexpected interruption to his life plan, but before he acted on it, after he had decided, but before he had acted, that's when God speaks. When you see angel of the Lord appear to him in a dream, an angel is God's messenger. When an angel speaks, that's a message from God. It's to be considered as a word from God. That window between deciding to do something and acting on it, that is God's grace to Joseph. And while it's not the point of the text and the point of our sermon today, it's worth us hearing and maybe leaning in a little bit that there might be some of you that have made up your mind about something that you're going to do. You have not consulted God, his word, his people at all, but you've made up your mind, but you haven't acted yet. And maybe today is God's grace to you calling you back to listen in and lean into the word of God. All right, maybe this is God's grace to save you from a decision that you're like, I don't even want to talk to God about it because I know he's going to say something that I don't want to hear. And today, maybe just a reminder of calling you back to the faithfulness of God and his word and his people. Listen in and lean into him and trust him. And then he says, the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In this dream, the angel is confirming Mary's story to Joseph. And look, he uses Joseph's lineage to connect this to the bigger plan of God. I can already tell. Courtney, my wife, tells me that when I crouch, it's because I'm excited. Sometimes she thinks I'm about to leap off the stage like I'm in the ready position. I'm going to be there a lot today, okay? Because every word in this passage, y'all, it's drenched in hope. This is God saying, Joseph, something bigger than you and your plan for your life is going on right now. This is about me and my plan for my people. So I need you to remember, Joseph, first, you're a son of David. God has always been with you, has always had a plan for you. So I'm going to tell you the same thing that I've been telling sons of David for generations. When it comes to trusting me, even when I interrupt your life in a really big, unexpected way that doesn't seem like it's going to be great in the moment, do not fear. Don't be afraid right now. Trust me. Verse 21, she'll give birth to a son. You're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, I'm gonna go ahead and even tell you what you're to name him. Name him Jesus, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew word, the Hebrew name Joshua, means Yahweh saves. Because Joseph, this is gonna be the one. This is the one who will save his people, not from the Romans, not from some other nations. He will save them from their sins. In other words, Joseph, he's the one we've been talking about for thousands of years, who once and for all will reconcile God's people back to himself. And then what happens right here is our author, Matthew, just presses pause on the story, okay? So we got this narrative going on, Joseph's in a dream, the dream is over, he's about to wake up, but before he wakes up, Matthew presses pause and he says, hey, I need to tell you about what's going on right here, okay? 
So I want us to, to pause with Matthew, and here's what he says. A little authorial aside to help us understand why this matters so much. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Now he's quoting Isaiah, who we listened to earlier. And Matthew's going to do this little kind of thing seven times in the first three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And that's because he's making a big, giant point in the opening of his Gospel to tell us who Jesus is. So let's pause with him and let's meet Jesus. When he repeats Isaiah saying the virgin will give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel is not giving us Jesus's like middle name, right? Like we don't get, uh, he didn't have like a little birth announcement go out. It's like, welcome to the world, Jesus Emmanuel Christ. That's not what happened here, right? Jesus is his name. Emmanuel and Christ are titles given to him, explaining who he was. In this case, Emmanuel, God with us, is telling us about the very nature of Jesus. Matthew's trying to open our eyes to a staggering claim, a staggering claim that has been absolutely core, central, must have to the Christian faith for as long as there has been a Christian faith. There is a holy, divine mystery being put into words that we have got to look in and see. This right here is why we've called this whole series Awakening Wonder, because I don't want Christmas to be routine for you. I want you to take the cue from Scripture, take the pause from Matthew, and lean in and wonder in amazement at the beautiful, powerful, holy, majestic gift that Jesus is to us. I want to try and show you what Matthew wants to see about who he really is. Then we'll, pause, then we'll unpause the narrative, and we'll finish, and we'll look at how we respond when God interrupts our lives. But listen, what I'm about to show you here in these two little verses that Matthew's just said, I'm most the people I'm most concerned about missing it are longtime churchgoers. So if that's you, I want you to listen. There's a chance that you could just passively accept who Jesus is instead of actively consider it and hold on to it. And a faith that you passively accept, that's kiddie pool faith. And God has so much more for you. And what Matthew is saying here is deep end stuff. So I want you to lock in and consider it. Here's the first thing Matthew's telling us. Jesus is fully 100% human. Matthew wants us to see that. We have to see Jesus as human. Born of a woman as a crying bedwetting baby boy. This is why that song, you know, um, Silent Night is a little bit of a farce, right? I mean, it was a holy night, but as every parent will tell you, ain't nothing silent and calm about childbirth. Birth is war, all right? If the song should be screaming night, holy night, and we would all really resonate a lot more, right? He, he was a baby and then he grew up, right? And he possessed the full range of human characteristics and emotions that we do. Luke 2 says he grew in wisdom. Mentally, he learned like a child learns. He wasn't eight months old saying substitutionary atonement like boss baby or something like that, okay? He was learning. And this matters. Here's why it matters, okay? All along this way, I'm trying to show you why it matters so much to us, what Matthew's saying here. He came to be our representative before God the Father, to be a substitute. Now listen, only a human can be a true substitute for the sins of other humans. 
When God made mankind, he said the penalty for disobeying him would be death. Death, physical and spiritual. That was the penalty set for rebelling against God. The justice of God, that characteristic that never changes, requires every person to pay for their sins. Yet the mercy of God that also never changes desired that people who he created in his image would not be put to death. So a substitute payment in place of those who deserve it that is fully human is the only way to satisfy the justice and mercy of God. He's got to be human. But of course, Matthew wants us to see something else in Emmanuel, God with us. And that's that he's God. Jesus is fully God. Just as he possessed the full scope of human characteristics. He possessed the full scope of divine characteristics. He's got the power to cure diseases, command over nature, even power over death. Listen, if you can believe this, Matthew 1, if you can believe that he's God, then why would it be hard to believe in anything else Jesus did? All right, if you can get there, is it hard to believe he walked on water if he's the one that created the water? Is it hard to believe that he fed 5,000 if he's the one that created the stomachs of the ones that he's feeding, once we accept the reality of what Christian scholars for a long time have called the incarnation, which just means God becoming flesh, becoming human, once we believe that, everything else makes sense. That's why J.I. Packer calls this the most extraordinary of all the miracles. And right here should be the point where you decide yes or no to Christianity. He had to be fully God because only God can be perfect. There's something the Apostle Paul says that we receive from our parents we pass on to our kids. It's our sin nature, our just inherent instinct to sin, to rebel against God. When sin entered the world, it corrupted us. So we have that in us. We're not born thinking of others first, right? Most little babies are not overly generous. You know what I mean? We have to learn that. We're born selfish and greedy. We don't need to be taught to say mine. Well, if Jesus was only human, he would be covered in that sin nature, just like all of us. And a sinner can't be a sacrifice for another sinner because the sinner has to die for his or her own sins. Only a sinless person could be a true substitute for a sinner. All right, think of it like if I had a, um, was coming up, getting ready to come up here and preach, but realized I had a coffee stain on my shirt, which I think I'm free of today. But let's say that's what happened. I'm like, man, I don't want to have a coffee stain on my shirt while I preach. Um, let me borrow your shirt, right? And I go over to Charlie and say, hey man, let me borrow your shirt. Well, if Charlie has a coffee stain on his shirt, right? That's not going to do me any good. And Charlie's going to be shirtless, right? So that'll be bad for him, right? What if all of you, every single person has a coffee stain on their shirt, right? Well, now we got a problem because I can't borrow from anybody else and I'm stuck. That's what scripture is saying. Sin has stained all of us. Only God who is perfect can extend his perfection out to us. And because he is infinite, if you'll allow the little uh, illustration analogy, Jesus has enough shirts for everybody of all time. He has limitless perfection to give to all. He's fully God, fully man. It's the only way we can be saved. But there's one other thing Matthew wants you to see. I think it is incredible. And that's that Jesus is God's promise fulfilled. That's why Matthew quotes so many prophecies. Each time he does, he's saying Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. Matthew's whole gospel is this giant announcement that the one that the Old Testament has been talking about for generations and generations and generations, thousands of years, is finally here. Jesus is the one that there's one story, all these little stories in the Old Testament, it's talking about one story, and that story is all about Jesus. 
Listen, Jesus is the child of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. He's the offspring of Abraham and Isaac that would be a blessing to the whole world. He's Abraham's lamb of God offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He's Jacob's ladder making a way for us to ascend into heaven to be with the father. He is the I am Moses met at the burning bush. Jesus is the final Passover lamb sacrificed to protect God's people from death. Jesus is Moses's bronze serpent lifted up on the pole so that all who look at him will be spared from death. Their rebellion earned them. Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army that Joshua followed into battle at Jericho. He's the king God promised would sit on David's throne forever. He's the true Samson who had strength yet was betrayed by his people. Yet Jesus' story ends not in climactic death, but in his glorious resurrection. There's more. That's just the narrative part of the Old Testament. Jesus is the faithful one the psalmist said would not stay in the grave. He's the one Psalm 22 said was forsaken by God for the sins of others, but cried out, it is finished. He's the one the psalmist said was sitting at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is Isaiah's Emmanuel. He's Isaiah's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's Isaiah's suffering servant, despised and rejected, and yet by his stripes, we are healed. He's Jeremiah's descendant of David. He's the one in Ezekiel's valley of dry bones who breathes life into those bones and brings them back from the dead. He's Daniel's fourth person in the furnace whose presence ensures that his people will not be consumed by the flames of his enemy. He's Daniel's Messiah that will die for the sins of the world. He's Hosea's son called out of Egypt. He's the true Jonah who went into the grave, came out after three days. He's Micah's ruler born in Bethlehem, Haggai's son of Zerubbabel, Zechariah's just and humble Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey who would be rejected for 30 pieces of silver. He's Malachi's messenger of the new covenant. He's the one and only God, man, savior, king, promised by God. And Matthew is telling you and I to open our eyes and hearts and worship in the response to the coming of Jesus. Man. This is why we celebrate Advent every year. To slow down everything and marvel and celebrate in wonder the Savior of the world. And God is saying, listen, Joseph, I know that's not your plan, but it's been my plan for thousands of years. So you got to trust me, Joseph. How does he respond? Verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until after she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. I don't know if I even put this in there, but you understand the only way Jesus is actually in the line of David is because Joseph trusted God and adopted him, right? Simply put, Joseph chose to trust the Lord's plan over his plan. When his life was interrupted in a huge way, Joseph trusted God's word to him. He chose to trust God, even though it meant being misunderstood by everybody around him. He even went above and beyond to ensure there was no question that the child was indeed virgin born. Y'all, some of the greatest moments in scripture began with God interrupting somebody's life. God comes to Moses, says, go get my people. He comes to Samuel, go anoint that shepherd boy, David. Comes to Abraham, sacrifice your son on the altar. Comes to Jonah, go to Nineveh. Comes to the Virgin Mary, says, I'll give you a son. Comes to the wise men and says, go all the way to Bethlehem. Comes to Peter and says, quit your job, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Comes to Saul, stop persecuting me. Instead, I want you to turn around and go preach the very gospel you were persecuting. Each of these occasions, something happened 
that was a huge interruption that they weren't expecting. They leaned in, they trusted God at his word, and he did far greater things in them and through them than they could have possibly imagined would ever happen. God interrupted their lives, he interrupts our lives, right? He does, he interrupts our lives. We just don't always see that's what's happening. Right, he interrupted my life five years ago, had a good, steady ministry job, and we started sensing this call to go plant a church. And the more I prayed, the more I felt like I, I had to do that, which doesn't make sense. You're supposed to like be an associate pastor, and then you become a lead pastor of an existing church. That's supposed to be easier, yet we followed God into this, and it's been hard, required great sacrifice, and there have been rainbows, but it's been good. What an incredible salvation movement God let us be a part of. I asked our staff, I said, how has God interrupted your life? Um, it was fascinating. Rashard Barnes, our Independence campus pastor, he said he uh, was diagnosed with diabetes a couple of years ago, and it was this massive interruption. He thought, I'm not going to be able to live the life that I planned, do the ministry that I planned on doing, everything else. He said, but then I slowed down, asked the Lord, what is he doing through this? And he said, that's exactly what God wanted him to do, was to slow his life down. And he's learned to value friends, value family, value his own life. He said, that interruption was one of the greatest acts of grace that God has ever given to me. Mandy Foster, our kids director. Y'all may not know this. A few years ago, she had brain surgery because her brain was leaking out of the back of her skull. It's a crazy story. You have to get her to tell you, okay? But she has this massive emergency brain surgery kind of thing. And she said that was the greatest, she talks about that as the greatest, one of the greatest gifts that God has given her. So it called her to lean in back and trust him. Here's what I want you to see from Joseph, Joseph and his perspective on the birth of Jesus. I hope that as you marvel at God's faithfulness and the arrival of Christ, you will at the same time trust him when he interrupts your life. Maybe you being here is an interruption this morning, right, to your life. I'm going to give you three observations from Joseph, and then we'll close it down. God's interruptions are powerful opportunities to draw close to God. It's the first thing I want you to hear. In almost all interruptions, I think we would be okay trusting God. Tell me if this resonates. If God would just do us the kindness of explaining what in the world he's doing in the moment, right? If we could get a dream like this, right? More than maybe I'll trust him. We want God, especially in these circumstances, we like it in all circumstances, but especially in these moments, we just love him to come down and explain. And God doesn't give us an explanation, but he does give us something. He gives us himself and he gives us his word. So my question is, when God interrupts your life, will you get mad at God and run from him? Or will you lean into his word and his promises to you? How do you do that? you remember that even when your life changes unexpectedly, the gospel stays firm. The gospel stays firm. The victory won for you in Christ for your sin, the eternal union you have with God the Father, his presence with you now, none of that changes. And because of that, you can draw near to God when life changes on you, right? In fact, the God-man reality of Jesus is what the author of Hebrews tells us should inspire us, should motivate us to go exactly to God when life changes on us, when we have that time of need. Look at this, this is Hebrews 4, 15, 16. We do not have 
a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The high priest is Jesus going to God on our behalf. But instead, we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are. That's Jesus's humanity, yet is without sin. That's his divinity. Therefore, because we have this God who understands completely what it means to be human, who is human in every way, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. That's the fact that Christ has been tempted in every way as we are, but yet is without sin. It means there's power for us there to go to him. Here's the next thing I'll say. God's interruptions can free us from the idol of a pain-free life. It's one of the greatest idols of our culture. One of the greatest idols of our culture. It's comfort, right? We do everything we can to stay as far away from pain as we can. But what you see constantly in scripture, what you see God doing, you see him doing his greatest work through the suffering of his people. I read the story this week of a couple, Jay and Catherine Wolf. Uh, They're my age. They were happily married the same year as Courtney and I. They moved out west so that Catherine could pursue a modeling career. Jay was getting his law degree. And when their firstborn was six months old, Catherine had a massive stroke. She almost died. The stroke left her physically disfigured. Recovery is years, several brain surgeries. She still looks different than she did. Well, they're believers. Um, and in an interview, she said that uh, she was one night, it's about 18 months into the recovery, she was praying angrily. You ever done that? All right, God, I'm going to pray, but I'm not happy about it, right? And that's where she was. Um, and she said, God, you made a mistake in not letting me die. And she said, God just whispered back, Catherine, I don't make mistakes. And she and Jay chose to stop looking in at their suffering and look up and see what might God be doing. At this point, God's interruptions can free us from the idol of a pain-free life. That's just a quote from from her. And she said, um, said, God uses these interruptions to free us from this idol. And he does his greatest work when I'm weak. Which, of course, the Apostle Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 12. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about what? My weaknesses, so that Christ's power might reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution. You need to slow that down and ask, do you take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ? For when I am weak, then I'm strong because God is working through me and getting the glory, which leads to the last point for today. God's interruptions are the master writing a better story for his glory. One thing I love about the Wolf family story is they chose in that season not to look at what was going on just in them, but what he might want to do through them. They started a camp called Hope Heals, and they used the story of God's faithfulness and their interruption to inspire others with disabilities. Look, this is, this is just one example, right? But this is what God does through his people 
all the time. In fact, this is why we want you. I want you to be praying for your one who is far from God but close to you because it may be that in the interruption in your life or maybe their life, but that might be what he uses to bring the two of you together. That's why we encourage you to invite people to church so that you can go out after lunch. Use those Christmas squares that are on your chair. Go out after lunch and talk about, man, this is how God interrupted my life. Now I'm trying to lean in and trust him and see what God is doing. And man, you're able to in that moment, this is what's so beautiful. When we choose to trust God, lean in and believe, yes, he's still gonna be faithful. Man, what might he do through us in the life of someone else? who is struggling, who can't make sense of this world, we can say, yes, I can't make sense of this moment, but I know that God is faithful. And I know that Christ got out of the grave. I know he died for me. I have a hope that cannot be shaken down at my core. What if we're able to give that away this Christmas? I wanted you to take a second and pray through um, and just in response, what the Lord might be, might be teaching you in this moment. So would you bow your head? And let me lead you in a prayer to kind of close out our time. Our teams are going to come in just a second and lead us to take communion together. But before we do that, so let me ask you to pray for a moment to God these couple of things. First, acknowledge the change. If there's been one in your life, an interruption in your life, would you ask the Lord to help you trust him? with this interruption. Would you tell him, God, I believe, I believe that because Christ died for me, because Christ got out of the grave, I believe because you were faithful to me in that moment, you are faithful to me now. I'm choosing to believe, Father. And then just thank him for Jesus. Take a moment and thank him for what he's done. You stay, you pray, and our, our teams will come and lead us.